Hey, what's up, everybody? Chris Catasso here from CBSSports.com, and you are listening to another episode of the Prospect Podcast. We're here in early December. The holidays are right around the corner, and the conventional beginning to draft season is right around the corner. But for me as a draft analyst, having watched these prospects for months now, I think December is the perfect time to dive deep on the class as a whole, the positions, maybe not having concrete scouting reports in a notebook, in a Google Sheet document, but just looking at the class as a whole. And that's what we're going to do today on this episode of the Prospect Podcast. And of course, I'm joined by Matthew Collar. Matt, how's it going today? I am doing well. I have a broad question for you before we get into what we wanted to discuss. How much do you think prospect analysis should change versus how much it does change from early December to the time players are picked. Cause I'm always amazed that when guys aren't playing, they suddenly get much better and worse. And even I saw uh, a little headline about the Philadelphia Eagles and some rifts over not drafting Justin Jefferson. Now that he's an instant superstar, of course that always comes out It's like, it's somebody else's fault. But I mean, just last year, you know, Justin Jefferson has this crazy good year. Jalen Rager does not exactly put up huge numbers, but then maybe combines and all these other things, um, you know, you have uh, the senior bowl and everything plays into it. And it seems like these lists shuffle a lot from now to then, even though there aren't that many more games. Yeah. I'm not a big believer in moving players up and down drastically after the season's over. Like I'm a big film guy, but the only time that I think it makes sense and that I really will move someone up somewhat significantly is after the combine that if there's a player that whether it be receiver or any position that either tests through the roof or just a cornerback that runs a four, six, you, you just can't have him in the first round or he has to be docked significantly for a combine workout. I think the senior bowl is a great event. I love mobile Alabama. I've been down there several times, but to move someone up and down based on three practices um, that it's weird. The scouting uh, industry, whether it be someone like myself, a draft analyst or teens, uh, they don't even care about the game, which is like weird to me. It's literally three practices and we hear about so many players that have bad weeks or, you know, these small school guys that come out of nowhere. Uh, I, I don't think that the senior bowl and really anything else that happens occurs, even a pro day should really change how you view or how you evaluate a prospect besides what they do in Indianapolis at the combine. How do you manage what NFL teams think of guys versus what you personally think of them? Because I, I always think like, you know, if you're, if you're talking about the combine, you know, somebody is going to get wowed by a player or drop a player too far. I'll even use a, a Minnesota Vikings example with Cameron Dantzler. He runs the poor 40. It drops him to the third round. He's probably not a third round prospect. You know, that teams are going to do that. It's happened with uh, Orlando Brown a few years ago with his terrible combine. You know, teams are going to do that, but you might watch him and say, I think he's a second round prospect as you you're making your list. How do you deal with that? Cause I always think that's tough. Yeah. I mean, that's a conundrum that arises every year. Uh, and I don't want to say famously, maybe famously, maybe infamously that I stick with my own evaluations. Like when there's a prospect that I didn't see it on film whatsoever, and he runs a great 40 and has a great three cone. And all of a sudden he's a top 15 pick like, and you can write an article or be on a podcast or do a radio spot 
and say, okay, this player is going to go inside the top 15, but I don't think he's going to ultimately play to that level or, or where the expectations are there. So I, I really try to stick to my guns when it comes to someone like Orlando Brown or Cam Dancer. Those are two really good examples. I do have like a little leeway where I have what I call trust the tape prospects like Harrison Bryant last year uh, for Florida Atlantic, the tight end for the Browns. He's had a pretty good rookie season, not incredible, but looked like the most explosive wide receiver or tight end with wide receiver abilities in the draft class. Like won the John Mackey award looked like the perfect type of player for that position in today's NFL. Go look at his combine. It was horrific. And I, I was like, was he, did he sneak some drinks into his hotel room? Was he hung over? Did he get up too early? Did he have a bad night of sleep? Wasn't sure what happened. He was someone that I still had as my number one tight end. I, I didn't have him in the first round, but I said, you know what? His film was so good that I'm just going to not even care where he's drafted. He went in the fourth round of the Browns. So I have a few of those. Orlando Brown was another one that I had a late first round grade on, and the combine was pretty bad, but he was a gigantic human relative to his weight and his height. It wasn't as bad as, you know, all like the poking fun of him on Twitter, which I thought was pretty horrible for someone that big having to go through the 40 yard dash and the vertical and all that. And I said, I'm trusting the tape on this guy and he's been pretty good. There's certainly players that go the other way around where uh, I just fall in love with their combine and say, Oh yeah, you can coach him up. A Danelle Hunter would be someone like that um, to kind of stick in your uh, neck of the woods. But yeah, it's unless there is a red flag that comes up about character issues, I, I really don't fluctuate too much. Although at the combine, you're hearing all these things of, uh, you know, a team doesn't really like Harrison Bryant that much or Orlando Brown's going to go in the third round. So you have him as a first round pick. I said it on the last podcast. I'm much more tuned into how good a player is going to be as opposed to where he's picked. And I do have to cater some articles to, okay, here's my last mock draft. Like here are the 32 guys I think are going to go in the first round, but I would probably pick maybe 20 of them in the first round. That's just, it's kind of a give and take when you're doing draft analysis and then also writing and talking about where these players will ultimately be picked. Yeah. And then you always see people who go through the mock drafts and say, Oh, you know, you got all these wrong or your rankings and the NFL disagreed with you and so forth. Well, the NFL drafted Lamar Jackson 32nd and uh, what Josh Rosen was 10th or something. So, yeah. you know, it's uh there's a lot of guesswork that goes into it, no matter who you are. Um, but I think we need to talk about this wide receiver class, Chris, because I am really intrigued by a lot of these. And I wonder, coming off of the last draft class, how as a whole you compare the strength of this one? Because the, the last draft class, what, five receivers in the first round, the last of the five turns out to be a, a superstar immediately, but there's been, you know, CeeDee Lamb is really good. And I think CeeDee Lamb probably has an even better season, maybe by a lot, if Dak Prescott is healthy the entire year. I still like what I've seen from Henry Ruggs, and there's a lot to develop there. But compare last year where there were so many guys that went in the first round to what we're going to see this year. I think it's pretty close. I think the 2020 wide receiver class is a little better, um, that you had those marquee names that went into their final season, C.D. Lamb, Jerry Judy, Henry Ruggs, and they lived up to the hype or exceeded it. And then you had someone really out of out of nowhere in Justin Jefferson have such a good final season at LSU to catapult him into the first round. But I think today in the NFL, it's not about – just how many wide receivers can go in the first round. It's the depth of these classes. 
that if you look at second rounders, even this year, T. Higgins has played really well. Uh, Chase Claypool has been a godsend in that Steelers wide receiver group. Um, Denzel Mims has played okay at times for the Jets. LaVisca Chenault, when he's been healthy, the quarterback situation isn't great, but he's flashed. So I think when there's there's such a supply and there's such a demand for these wide receivers, it's not even just having the marquee names, the Jerry Judys, the Jamar Chases. It's how good is the class second, third, fourth round? Because I think a lot of the good teams are able to still get a good player later. So I think it's close. I think there was a, it was last year was a little more top heavy in terms of talent, but the depth is pretty close. I think we'll look back in a year, just like we have the past couple of years, and say of those second to fourth round wide receivers from this 2021 group, there were some really good players there. So I, I think it's close. It's not as good, but it's pretty close. Before we get into some of the names, I want to ask you what you think of current positional value of wide receivers, because I'll tell you what I think. I think it's way up there. I mean, quarterback is always going to be number one as long as we line up 11 on 11 human beings on a piece of grass or uh, whatever they use with the little broken up tires to make (laughs) turf softer. As long as that happens, quarterback will be number one. It will never be touched. I think wide receiver might be number two. If it's not, maybe it's corner for for all positions. But the way that individual receivers can dominate and take over games in today's NFL, the amount of passes that get thrown per week, the explosive plays that are created by elite wide receivers – and what we see from quarterbacks when they don't have them. Even Matt Stafford this year when Kenny Galladay has been out, he's just a different quarterback when he's not in there. And the impact of someone like Justin Jefferson on Kirk Cousins after trading away Stephon Diggs. I mean, I I think that if it wasn't number two before, then it absolutely is now. And nobody should ever apologize. In fact, maybe we all owe Matt Millen an apology. Drafting receivers was right, Matt Millen. You just got a bad break. I, I mean, really. He was ahead of his time. Right, exactly. Keep drafting wide receivers. Uh, I, I would say it's number two. Where do you have it? I think it's up there. I still think the offensive line, offensive tackle would be one of the premium positions. Most people would probably agree with that. But in the last three to five years, we've just seen not only teams wanting to pass more, but teams passing more efficiently than ever before. That. We always bring up Kirk Cousins, but like you can say, oh, he's a middle-of-the-road quarterback, but he can complete almost 70% of his passes, throw 30-plus touchdowns. And beyond the passing efficiency, I think we've seen, and you and I growing up, teams had one really good wide receiver and then solid number two, and that was it. It was like at that point, you don't need anything else. You've got to still feature the run game, have a good tight end. We're seeing teams saying, hey, we want three good wide receivers. The Buffalo Bills get Stephon Diggs when they have John Brown and Cole Beasley. The Cowboys draft CeeDee Lamb when they have Amari Cooper and Michael Gallup. You look around the league, I think a lot of these teams are like, hey, we want to have three legitimate weapons. Maybe they have different skill sets, um, but the supply and demand is really interesting because it's there were 34 wide receivers picked last year in the draft. Um, but it's almost like there's that much demand for them that teams, like I said, you can get second to fourth round, you can get a good player, you can get some solid ones later in the draft too, um, that the college level is pumping out so many talented wide receivers because a lot of those programs are running four and five wide receiver sets. There's just bound to be more talent coming into the NFL, but the league needs it. And Matt Millen, again, was ahead of his time. I, I don't think the league in, in the early 2000s was ready for three wide receiver sets as much as they are today, but it's just fascinating because it's like, 
I feel like every year we're going to say, this is a great wide receiver class, but there's also like every team in the league that could use one or two wide receivers. Like it's like, once you get to the fifth or sixth round, you might as well just draft a receiver to just see if he can stick and become a niche player on your team. So it's a fascinating position that is raising its value every season. I would like to clarify for Lions fans, that was the only thing Matt Millen had right. He didn't pick the right guys. Uh, well, there was a Mike Williams mixed in there that was, uh, mm-hmm. what, a guy who didn't play for his entire senior year or something. I forget what the situation was. And then all of a sudden, you know, you're taking him in the top five or whatever. I mean, so he did a lot of other things wrong, but drafting wide receivers on the the surface is the right way to go. You know, it is interesting what you mentioned because the first rounders have produced uh, for this year's class or the, you know, the 2020 class. But when you look at the previous couple of years, there have been a lot more of those gems that people were able to find. And DK Metcalf is at the very top of that list of someone who has become a superstar and just shot to the top. But AJ Brown is maybe one of your subtle superstars in the NFL too. Um, I wonder what you think of someone like DK Metcalf who you're dealing with not a lot of production. You're dealing with some of the injuries. You're dealing with a crazy combine that where he's super fast, but he also doesn't move side to side. It's like someone messed with the Madden ratings. When you look at his combine where it's like someone gave him mm-hmm. 99 speed, but forgot agility or whatever. And yeah. uh, you know, everyone's making these comparisons. Is he Megatron? Is he Terrell Owens? And those, those types of things. But I, I wonder about, when you look at receiver prospects from the past, the ones that have worked out, the ones that haven't necessarily even been the first round picks, what we can learn about how to evaluate this class and future classes from some of the hits and misses of the recent past. Yeah, that's a good question. I think what has become needed for wide receivers in today's NFL, and we can keep going back to Justin Jefferson and ride that out as long as possible. The ability to separate, is become king. It's more important than contested catchability. I think even the early 2010s, when you had Daz Bryant and Jordy Nelson, Brandon Marshall, those big body wide receivers, even for someone like myself, I kind of fell in love with those big targets coming into the draft every year because you were seeing those were the types of players that were scoring the most points for their team. Um, but now the ability to get open and to create after the catch Um DK Metcalf isn't someone that's going to run an intricate route, but he's going to get open on the vertical route tree. And after the catch, he's a horse to bring down to the turf. A.J. Brown, Debo Samuel, another second-round pick that they might not have the craziest combines, but they had good production in college. And they can either do one of two things or both. They can get open, and they're awesome after the catch. Really, the one first-round pick, I'm just looking at a list, over the last, like, five years – first-round wide receiver that has had a really good career, or pretty good, is DJ Moore from the Carolina Panthers. Hasn't been on the best teams. He's had some injuries, but this year he's having a good season. He was someone that was outstanding after the catch at Maryland. He was almost Debo Samuel before Debo Samuel in that he looked like a running back. He wasn't someone that had sprinter speed. He did run in the four fours, but wasn't super fast. But he was a running back after the catch. And beyond that, it's like the league has – gone after someone like Nikhil Harry in the first round that's great in contested catch situations um, or someone that's just really fast like Marquise Brown but not necessarily great after the catch for being a smaller wide receiver so the ability to break tackles to absorb hits and continue forward I think is paramount and in my grading system it's become a category that's more weighted heavily that that 
three years ago that was further down the list. But every year as I watch the league evolve and watch the, what players are succeeding and the players that are not succeeding, you have to tweak that grading system. And I've moved yards after the catch and separation ability to the top of the list. And you look at the second, third, fourth rounders that have played well at the position compared to some of the first rounders, they have those two skills in spades. Well, when you think about the evolution of the game, you think about even the quarterbacks that you and I grew up watching, your Jim Kellys and John Elways and so forth. And Kelly did throw a lot of underneath stuff and yards after catch to his receivers. But um, the completion percentages for those guys are like 58%. You know, yeah. John, uh, Joe Montana is setting records at like 64%. And I think a lot of that is throwing the ball downfield more often, where now you have these underneath crossers, these screens, these quicker passes, unless you're Gary Kubiak, who's still running those receivers deep down the field for Kirk Cousins. <laughs> it works for for them, but you know, Kubiak's kind of running a little bit of uh some 90 stuff there, but you know, Kyle Shanahan has all these guys getting in position over the middle of the field in space. And if you can break several tackles and you can punish defensive backs and safeties for being undersized, um, you know, especially the safeties are getting smaller. The cornerbacks aren't getting much bigger. So you have someone like Debo Samuel who looks like Derrick Henry out there and, and yet catching passes and making plays. I, I think it's a great point for just how offenses are designed to get the ball in playmakers hands. So, even if you aren't the most straight line insane speed like a Marquise Brown, you're not running the John Ross 40 or the uh, back in the day, the Don Beebe 40. Um, it really, it's kind of like that natural ability. And that is what you see from Justin Jefferson. He has this natural ability when he gets the ball that he's going to make plays. And I even wonder about looking at running backs and saying, as they're coming out in the draft, which one of these guys could be a slot receiver? That that I don't know how often that happens. It doesn't seem like it happens a lot, but I think that it should, where you say, all right, is there a guy who has good enough hands where we could run him these underneath routes and get him even more space to work with as opposed to plowing him into bodies all the time? Yeah, I think that's the next step at the running back spot. I know we're talking about receivers, but that there'll be running backs that will get drafted high or will play or have successful NFL careers that are not really our, our traditional running back that that do that are almost hybrid players that are in the slot that aren't just throwing screens but are used on those underneath throws that you're talking about and I think one last point on this uh, I don't think corners and safeties are really great tacklers so you're almost exploiting their weakness that when a corner who's super fast that can read route concepts that can read the hips of a wide receiver when he's in phase all of a sudden has to try to tackle A.J. Brown, who's 6'1", 230, and bring him to the turf. That's why we saw in that touchdown against the Ravens a few weeks ago, he broke like eight tackles in that game, which is an insane number. And on that late touchdown, there was like three or four guys that tried to bring him down, smaller corners that just couldn't do it. So it's funny that I think we think of a yards after the catch receiver as a Tavon Austin type uh, that's small, really fast, twitchy. But it's almost like these squatty running backs playing receiver are the guys that are kind of changing how we view what is to be a good wide receiver, what you need, the skills that you need to have. So I think yards after the catch really cannot be stated enough as to how important it is. Yeah, and I think even just managing injuries, too, that some mm -hmm. of your skinnier wide receivers, I mean, you get beat up a lot as a receiver now. So here's here's how I want you to talk about the um, the top guys here of this list, because a lot of people who are listening is probably know some of the names at the top of the list. If you've watched any Alabama football, you've seen several, or LSU football, 
you've seen several, but I don't want you to do it by who's the best. I want you to do it by who is the most interesting. Give me the three most interesting first round caliber wide receivers. I think Devonta Smith from Alabama is the most interesting because you look at him, he's listed at six one. 175 pounds and he looks like that looks like a legitimate uh measurement and you're like 6'1 175 like I don't can't think of any receiver that has that height to weight ratio that's been good but every week he puts up big numbers and it's not all scheme stuff he's probably the smoothest wide receiver that I've evaluated that from his releases at the line to creating separation on an intermediate route, double moves down the field. And then also after the catch that there's no jaggedness to his game. He just very fluid on the field. He's going to leave Alabama as one of like, as the all time leader in like every receiving category. He caught that game winning touchdown from Tua Tungvaluwa as a freshman in the national title game against Georgia. He was a big recruit he kind of reminds me of Reggie Wayne that I could see him going later in the first round, like Reggie Wayne did to the Colts back in the day. And he just does everything well. He runs good routes. He's good after the catch and he's pretty fast. And almost every week you see him make a ridiculous high point grab over a safety or a corner. And you're like, how is this spindly guy? First off, how is he not bulked up in four years in the Alabama weight room? And secondly, how is he playing like he's six foot four, but also super fast and also good after the catch? So Devonta Smith to me is probably the most interesting. And to me, the number two or, or the second most interesting is Rondell Moore in that he kind of fits. I talked about Tavon Austin being the old idea of what a yards after the catch gadget receiver was. He's, that size, but he's also stocky in his lower half. Rondell Moore looks like almost like Devin Singletary. Like he looks like he's going to be like five, six, 200 pounds. And that plays really well when he takes contact that he can just bounce off at his low center of gravity. Doesn't easily go to the turf. And I think he's going to run really fast too, that certainly you don't want to be Tavon Austin if you're a wide receiver picked in the first round, but he has, the ability to do what Tavon Austin did at, at West Virginia to do all that gadget underneath stuff. And he can stretch the field and to see uh, what he did as a freshman, didn't really get that much playing time last year before injury. And then to come back this year and he's still making a lot of plays or using him in all different ways. Uh, he's someone I think later in the first round and combine will ultimately probably peg him at a specific part of the draft. Uh, he's fascinating to me because He's short, but he's so stocky that I think he really will translate in the yards after the catch realm in ways that Ty that Tavon Austin and some of these smaller, twitchier guys didn't. The last most interesting um, wide receiver to me that of these five or six guys, Terrace Marshall from LSU, that behind your guy Justin Jefferson and Jamar Chase last year, he quietly caught 13 touchdowns. I know Joe Burrow threw for like 50-something, so it, it was easy to, for Terrace Marshall to get kind of lost in the mix there. But if you do want to pick a bigger wide receiver, I think Terrace Marshall is the kind of guy that you want because a lot of these, let's say Mike Williams, Josh Doxson, Laquan Treadwell, these big bodies that I think when the league was trying to find the next Des Bryant, they ultimately failed because they were clunky. They were big. They could win in those jump ball situations. 
but I don't think their quarterbacks ever really trusted to throw them the football because they were just never open. I mean, Mike Williams has had a decent career, but I don't think he's lived up to being a top 10 pick with the Chargers. Terrace Marshall's really fast. I think he's going to run at six foot three and around 220 pounds, low four fives, high four fours. Um, and then he gives you all of that rebounder stuff. Like he is fantastic boxing out. I think he's going to have a great vertical and watching him over this summer compared to watching him this season at LSU. And he already has 10 touchdowns this year without Joe Burrow, which is really impressive. I've seen the ability for him to sink his hips and to get open. I don't think he's going to get open the same way that Justin Jefferson does on the Vikings, but he's not a stiff straight line player that is going to have cornerbacks glued to him at the next level. So if you do want someone that might give you some glimpses of DK Metcalf, and if you can't pick one of these yards after the catch uh, separation based players, you want to go for some more size in your receiver room, Terrace Marshall, I'm just really fascinated by him and to see what he does at the combine at 6'3 and around 220 pounds. I think you make a really interesting point about contested catch receivers and how it's good to be a contested catch yeah. receiver, but quarterbacks are really only throwing to who's open now. I mean, I, I don't think that there's as much throw it up to Brandon Marshall or Terrell Owens or Randy Moss and, and the guy will go get it. Even on a week-to-week basis when you watch all 22 tape and you see if someone's got a safety over the top of them, quarterbacks are usually just not throwing it. Like you're not often saying, hey, go up among three guys and get it, unless you're Mitch Trubisky just making a terrible decision and throwing in <laughs> triple coverage. That's that true. also does happen. Um, but you, you just don't see it that often. And I think that that all plays into it and kind of what works um, ends up being in a way dictated by where the league is at. And I don't think that this is going to change though. I think that this will continue with offensive innovations, more guys getting open, completion percentages being higher. Eventually the league will reach my Madden completion percentages of like 92% or whatever. We'll get there eventually. Um, now I want to circle back to what you talked about with Rondell Moore. Cause he's very interesting to me. I, I think he's number one on my list because the minute he gets the ball in his hands, he's moving faster than everyone else. It's, it's like a, like your eye goes like, wait, did, did my DVR mess up or something? Because this guy is is just so explosive. But he's also had some of those issues that you mentioned. I'm not sure even how much football the guy has had an opportunity to play um, over the last couple of years. So how do you weigh these different elements of it? And is it, I mean, is there some Curtis Samuel there? Is there some LaVisca Chenault to, to, uh, to him? How do you kind of compare those guys? Yeah, I think he's more of a smaller version, a much smaller version than Chenault, or as Chenault as he is Curtis Samuel. I think Curtis Samuel was very raw coming out of Ohio State, um, and we've seen those splash plays with the Panthers, but he's never really come into his own as a second-round pick. Um, but, yeah, I think what you mentioned, the fact that he's not been able to play a ton of football uh, is probably what's going to knock him down. He's had some injuries being a smaller wide receiver. Um, that's probably why he's going to go in the back half of the first round. I think unless he blows the doors off the combine, if he just played three years at Purdue freshman, sophomore, junior year, he would probably put up ridiculous statistics. He probably would have, and he probably would be a top 20, top 15 pick because he is that talented. And in my wide receiver watch article that I do every week after the weekend, like usually Monday, Tuesday, it runs at cbsports.com. When I watched Rondell Moore's debut a few weeks ago, he had like 15 catches, didn't have a, a ton of yards, but they were just kind of pumping him targets. I wrote, because I really felt this, and this is kind of to your point, 
that every time he touched the ball, I thought he was going to score. Like he makes that first guy miss and he's already running at like 20 miles per hour, like two yards after he caught the football. So he is the definition of explosive. uh, And he really gives you that sense that he's going to hit a big play every time. But beyond just that feeling, he's, again, like I said, good at taking a hit and staying on his feet. I think that's really important. Debo Samuel and A.J. Brown, they get hit all the time. They're not really juking defenders necessarily. They can just stay on their feet because their contact balance is so good because they're so thick and strong in their lower half. So it's easy to look at Rondell Moore and see 5'7", five, 5'8", five, and think, oh, he's just going to be hit and go to the turf immediately. I think he's going to have, in terms of his body composition, is going to be similar to a LaVisca Chanel or an A.J. Brown shorter and not weighing as much but if he's like something like 5'9 and close to 180 or 190 pounds that's a thick wide receiver and it will be fascinating to see because to see how good he was as an 18 year old as a freshman to lose the second season playing in this abridged version of a season as a junior the quarterback situation isn't great the numbers aren't going to look great to see if really the teams that can take that all away and distill just his traits because the traits that he has, I think are top half of the first round. Before uh, I give you some extra points here at the end, is there anything else you wanted to add about the receiver class? I mean, there's a ton of meat on the bone and we've got lots of time to talk about them, but um, you know, is there, was there something that we left out there? No, not really. Because yeah, like you're saying, we do have a lot of time in this, in, this has become a valuable position that a lot of people want to hear about leading up to draft time. The one thing I'm kind of bummed about is that I thought, not that I'm rooting against any prospect. I thought that early in the season, if Jalen Waddle stayed healthy, he had a chance to supplant Jamar chase to be the first wide receiver off the board. I mean, talk about explosive. Like mm-hmm. he was up there with Rondell Moore and he's a little bigger Uh, plays a little bigger in those contested catch situations because he's a little taller and he has, I think, a better vertical. What he was doing in the first, like, month of the season at Alabama was, like, out of control, like, ridiculous returning kicks, too. Then he gets hurt on pretty much what looked like an innocuous tackle uh, on a kick return. So it was kind of a bummer because there was just – it's been penciled in since last year that Jamar Chase, top five pick, first receiver, and to see that it turned into a little bit of a race – it would have been fun to see and to track during the draft process if Jalen Waddell could have gone ahead of him. I think with the ankle injury now, he probably won't. But there are a lot of guys, a lot of these opt-outs too, that are top prospects that we're just not going to see that much of leading up to April. Yeah, I, I think that um, COVID has not made anything better and certainly made everything <laughs> harder yes, for absolutely. us to evaluate. But uh, it does add an, a layer of intrigue to how will you deal with all these things in this COVID season where, like you mentioned with Rondell Moore, it's like the, how many games is he even played? How, much, how many numbers can he really put up? Um, some of these guys uh, come in and then they opt back out. And then it's like uh, with Rashad Bateman, their team is playing and then their team has COVID and then it's not play. It's just like, how are we going to manage all these things is a big storyline as we go along. And I don't even know how the combine is going to happen, what the deal with the senior bowl is like all these things will be very interesting to follow. So let me give you three extra points here. First, uh, solve the Carson Wentz conundrum for me, Chris. What 
has happened to Carson Wentz to go from MVP candidate in 2017 to literally like the worst quarterback in the NFL? I mean, it has been that bad outside of your replacement level quarterbacks who come and go, your Brandon Allens of sorts. Outside of that, for franchise quarterbacks, he is dead last this year. What happened? It's pretty unprecedented, so I can't say that I know the exact answer. I don't know if anyone does. I don't even know if Carson Wentz understands that. I do think that in 2017, uh, if you go down a little rabbit hole, you can see that a lot of his touchdown numbers were aided by the fact that the defense was good. And I, I forgot what the number was. He had like six or seven touchdowns on drives that started inside the red zone that year <laughs> yeah, or sure. inside the 30. So, and that was like the highest number in NFL history, but I mean, just watching him, he looked like one of the better or best young quarterbacks in the league. I go back to always with these players when they succeed, someone like Justin Jefferson that I missed on or Carson Wentz, how they were as prospects. And at North Dakota state, I remember, and we talked about this in the previous podcast with quarterbacks, um, that at North Dakota State, the situation was perfect. The offensive line, he was rarely pressured. Mm -hmm. The receivers got open. The scheme was great. And he was very clunky in the pocket. Like, he's a big quarterback, like 6'4", 6'5", bigger body. And whenever he was pressured or moved off his spot, that's why I wasn't as big of a fan. Like, I would not have picked him and traded up to number two to select him in that draft because I was worried about not – his willingness to move inside the pocket, but his ability to do so, because I felt like he had almost like Dwayne Haskins, like cinder blocks on his feet. And that there were times where he had to throw through tight windows where those, like those are the instances where you saw some of his mistakes happen that 95% of his throws, open receivers, a lot of production, big plays, play action, clean pocket. And I think now in Philadelphia, the offensive line is in, shambles like so many injuries that group that had been so good for so long is older now Jason Peters is playing on like one leg at like 37 <laughs> yeah. years old at guard like uh and the receivers are, are not great and they've been injured so I think he's now seeing a situation that he's not used to because even early in Philadelphia uh they had a lot of good receivers. The offensive line was routinely one of the best in the league. The run game was fantastic. They used play action a lot. And now he's like, oh, no one can block for me, and no one's really getting open. It's To me what's interesting is that I think we look at a Kirk Cousins and say, okay, if the quarterback doesn't have a great arm and is a little smaller, he's more of that game manager type. But Carson Wentz, I think we're now seeing, was someone that was elevated by – the situation around him as this big strong arm quarterback that can move a little bit, uh, then can improvise relative to his athleticism. I think a lot of the weaknesses that were to me somewhat apparent at North Dakota state, but just didn't happen very often are now being, you know, every single week, every single quarter, he's having to deal with pressure. He's having to get through his reads and try to make a tight window throw. And I think he's a little bit timid to do that because he just didn't have to do it very often in college or early on with the Eagles. But it is crazy to go from MVP candidate to the worst yeah. starting quarterback in the league. Like I tweeted the other day that I was like, is he Josh Freeman? But I was like, Josh Freeman was like, had the good rookie season, but was never an MVP candidate. He was a flash in the pan for one year. Carson Wentz has just slowly but surely fallen off a cliff. And now he is at the bottom of that cliff. I think it tells you uh, what, 
you get in terms of benefits when you have the best offensive line in the league, in which he did in 2017. Everybody, mm-hmm. There's usually like one or two offensive lines that are mauling everyone and that stay healthy and they're incredible. I would put the Eagles offensive line in the top three of the decade, I think, yeah, from for sure. 2010 to 2020, um, along with the Dallas Cowboys one where Dak Prescott went 13-3. and If you have that unit, it's very unusual that you do, but if you do, your quarterback gets to sit back there all day and watching, having been there in Philadelphia to see the Vikings defensive line shut down trying to get after Nick Foles in the NFC Championship game. We're talking Daniel Hunter and Linval Joseph and Everson Griffin not really being able to, right not being able to get to the quarterback uh, that tells you how it impacted Carson Wentz and Nick Foles and made us think that they were better than they were because any NFL quarterback given that much time can make plays I think that's it but like you said the fall off goes well beyond just that and I think there's probably some mental elements to it as well uh let me just give you one more here cornerbacks <laughs> looking at the PFF grades for rookie corners. And I just may God have mercy on all of you who came into the league this year as a rookie corner. There is exactly two corners that PFF grades over a 61 this year in coverage grade. They are getting demolished. So how do we figure out Chris, who the long-term good corners will be based on what we've seen this year? Do you have someone in mind that you think, Hey, even though it's been a rough year, this guy will ultimately be the best of the class. I don't know. It's it's tough. I think uh, actually to bring up Justin Jefferson again, there was a, I forgot what cornerback for the Carolina Panthers it was, but there was a highlight that I saw on Twitter of Justin Jefferson running that little jerk route in the, uh, like inside the five the other week. Mm-hmm. Um, and someone, uh, one of the Panthers corners said playing cornerback is the most difficult position on the like on the field today when it comes to defensive holding and the uptick in pass interference. And like we said, how spread everything is, how talented these wide receivers are, that there's two and three quality wideouts, uh, how good they are after the catch. I think that's why um, some of these rookie cornerbacks, even the ones that are going in the first round are really struggling because it's just such a hard position that it's, you're a first round cornerback. You are Jeffrey Akuda. You need to come in and lock down number one wide receivers immediately. And I think that position wide receiver has, I'm not going to say lapped cornerbacks, but they have advanced, I think a little bit further ahead of how to beat press and how to uh, use their entire skill set, their speed, their agility, um, and their coaches are just doing a better job scheming them open. That Jeffrey Akuda was one of the cleanest cornerback prospects. And look back from me, from anyone else, any other draft analyst, he was universally loved as the number one cornerback. That he played press man, he was long, he had a great combine, and he's been pretty bad as a rookie because for a lot of those reasons that I just outlined, I think it's very difficult if you're going from facing Rutgers and Indiana wide receivers to Devontae Adams and Kenny Galladay. Uh, so I, I think that's part of the reason why. And there's not really anyone, I don't know if there's anyone that sticks out for you. There's not really anyone that I could say, oh, this player I think eventually is going to be amazing out of the last year's cornerback draft class. I still like C.J. Henderson a lot. I mean, I think his physical profile is pretty incredible. And even though he's playing for the Jaguars and here's, I'm grading on a curve a little bit because they don't pressure the quarterback at all. I think they 
as we speak, have 11 sacks. I mean, what? In yes. the NFL? Like 12, 12 weeks into the season, your team has 11 sacks, and he's still been put on an island. I also look at guys who have a lot of breakups and who make plays on the ball, and I think that that matters quite a bit. And from that area, Jalen Johnson has been quite good. Um, but I also am going to give Jeffrey Kuda a pass because I don't think his head coach knew what he's doing on defense. No. All of a sudden, Darius Slay wasn't good. There's a lot of players who have – been very talented and succeed in other places that go to the Lions and struggle. So I am going to wait and see on Jeff Akuda. I still think he's the best pro- uh, prospect, and whoever comes to coach him next has a lot to work with there. So um, there you go. All right. Well, this was really fun, Chris. This is great. All right. Yeah, Matt. Um, I don't really think there's anything else to get to. Uh, maybe next podcast we'll jump into the class as a whole uh, in terms of what is like what positions are strong and what are weak? And that's like a question I get in December, January, like, Hey, is this a good receiver class? Is this a good, which I think now we have kind of told everyone that it is a good receiver class, <laughs> but I get that question a lot on Twitter um, about what classes are weak and strong. I think fans are starting to look at their team's roster and saying, Hey, we need a corner or yeah. we need a defensive lineman. It's much more than just a corner or a quarterback and a receiver class. There's two or three other positions uh, that I think will really stand out. And there's a few marquee spots that I could see them not being any of those players picked inside the first round. It will be uh, a great December for us, Chris, I think. All right, guys, that'll do it today. I'm Chris Trapasso for Matthew Collar. This was the Prospect Podcast.